0: I like to move and move it, I like to move and move it, I like to move and move it, you like to move it, I like to move and move it, I like to move and move it, I like to move it, move it, you like (laughs) to day everybody and welcome to I Like To Movie Movie. My name is Dan Scully and uh, I am now flying solo on this podcast. I will be having some guests coming up soon but uh, for the interim it is just going to be me. Thank you for allowing me a little bit of time to learn the tech on this. Uh, We will miss Garrett on the show for plenty of reasons uh, but one of the most important reasons is that he was the tech guy and now I am the tech guy so I had to learn how to do all of this from square one um but luckily I have been surrounded by a lot of very cool people who have been able to help me out so here we are at season 2 of I like to movie movie uh we are part of the Movie John podcast network and uh, you'll also notice that there's a little Anchor FM logo that has popped up uh, on our logo. Brand new logo from friend of the show, Steve Richards, and co-host of my other show, uh, Hot Property. And so th- that means that I've moved from Libsyn to Anchor. Uh, so you will find everything there. This doesn't change anything for you. You should still be able to access the show uh, every way that you have always been able to access the show but uh, I'm throwing that out there in case you have any questions about it. Now I'm going to burp because uh, I've had a fair amount of coffee. Does coffee make you burp? I don't know. It certainly makes you shit and it makes you pee. But uh, Which I've done plenty of that today as well. So uh, this is season two. Uh, enjoy our new logo. Uh, enjoy our new point of contact. We are at Movie Movie Cast on all of the things. So check out the Instagram where you can see... Uh, images from our episodes, uh, some other things that I'm working on, such as live happy hour broadcasts that uh, you can be involved in. Uh, You can email me at moviemoviecast at gmail.com and of course you can follow the Twitter at moviemoviecast. So, In honor of doing a solo episode, I have decided to cover today one of my all time favorite movies, and the more I think on it, it is probably my favorite horror anthology. I'm a big fan of horror anthologies, and I've seen a whole bunch of them. There's plenty more that I have not seen because it is such a uh, what's the word? I don't want to say approachable. Because I always make fun of many years ago, I was at a beer sampling and a guy told me that a beer tasted approachable. And I nodded my head as if that means anything. And it, it's one of the most fucking pointless, oh, it's approachable. Yeah, other beers call me a bitch when I try to drink them. This one's quite approachable though. But whatever, I in the moment I was cool with it and was probably drunk. But uh, yeah, it's a very approachable format. I think that it's a format filled with opportunities, especially in the world where multiple filmmakers are involved in a horror anthology because you can have different styles, different directors, different writers approaching each segment of it. So, uh, of course, I don't even know if I said it, the movie that I'm referring to is VHS, Uh, this is a movie that was made in 2012, I believe, by The Collective. Um, bunch of people that are actually all, like, big names now. And, uh, but we will get into that in a little bit. I want to do, I do want to check on the year before we move into some movie news. Yes, 2012. So we'll get into that shortly. But, before we do any of that, let's talk about some movie news. Let's talk a little bit about what has been going on this week. So, first and foremost, uh, there has been an announcement that uh, Universal slash Peacock is about to spend $400 million on a new Exorcist trilogy. A new Exorcist trilogy. Um, The Exorcist, as it is, sort of has a uh, kind of a wonky canon to it, uh, as it were, the first Exorcist. Uh, was released it was then re-released with the version you have not seen um in the late 90s early 2000s i believe in which the spider walk down the stairs was added a few other things i think that most would be in agreement with me that the version you've never seen is actually the inferior of the two cuts then there was the exorcist 2 um a movie that i did not love when i first saw it but in hindsight it seems to be getting a lot of love and i do plan on revisiting it sometime soon um we'll definitely do the whole series on this show at some point exorcist 3 based on the uh william peter blatty novel which uh, was a crime novel sort of retrofit to be a part of the exorcist canon this is one of those movies that uh was not beloved, but is now a cult classic. And I've actually watched somewhat recently. And while it's a bit messy and a bit all over the place, and there are multiple cuts to play with, um, it's it's quite good. I, I'm, I'm definitely a fan of that. It has the best jump scare, I think, in the history of cinema. And to call it a jump scare is kind of inaccurate because it's sort of a slow thing. The jump doesn't come from any swell in music or from any sudden action it's actually within the filmmaking there's a tight zoom and then sort of a slow jump but uh, if you know what I'm talking about the nurse the scissors uh, that is uh, some scary scary stuff so the response to this new Exorcist trilogy uh, has one taken issue with canon which oh I, I even forgot there was two prequels to the Exorcist there was uh, the Exorcist oh shit what was it called the beginning which was the Rennie Harlan, uh, more uh, blockbuster-friendly take on the material, as well as Dominion prequel to The Exorcist that was Paul Schrader's more Paul Schrader-y version, and Stellan Skarsgård stars in both. I've seen the Rennie Harlan one. I believe I saw that in the theater when it came out. I remember nothing about it except a lady climbing on the ceiling, and I have not seen Dominion but that will be corrected soon uh, on this show. So stay tuned. I have no issues with alternate canon in any of these franchises, personally. I'm too big a fan of the Halloween franchise for that to be a bother of any sorts. Uh, The way I see it, it's all imaginary, and so you can kind of just pick and choose what you want. You know, for The Exorcist, you know, I, I love this series, but I have no particular love for the canon that it can't be messed with um i do know that oh big yeah big yeah oh it's been a stressful two weeks ellen burston is coming back for the trilogy um linda blair made a twitter post about how she has not been approached for the trilogy yet so that's still up in the air i, I personally i take the the position of it just remains to be seen you know uh, this is the kind of thing that yeah you can get mad about it yeah you can get excited about it and i am just going to remain curious. Um, I'll definitely watch it when it comes out, and I will make my judgments then. But as it were, I mean, I, I'm down. More Exorcists is a good thing. I think I apply it the same way that I apply to Star Wars, Star Trek, Indiana Jones, all that stuff is even bad The Exorcist is better than no The Exorcist. And as somebody who very, very strongly defended the uh, Ghostbusters 2016 entry, um against the idiots who thought it somehow erased the existence of the other stuff i applied that same thing here if the new exorcist turns out to be Balsack, uh the other ones still remain what they always were and what they always will be and that's a good thing and if new exorcist material gets new eyes on the old stuff that is a win as well and it remains optional so if you don't want to see it you don't want to see it anyway Speaking of Ghostbusters, the trailer for Ghostbusters Afterlife dropped and you would think that it was the announcement of the apocalypse because there are two camps on this. It's either going to be the best Ghostbusters movie ever or it is an affront to all things cinema. Um, The way I see it is we have three Ghostbusters movies, all which kick serious amounts of ass. And I think that the new one uh, will continue that trend. And if it does not, well, I still have all the old ones to watch. A couple criticisms I saw of the new trailer, though, is everybody going, oh, why is it avoiding advertising as a comedy? I actually disagree that that's the case. I mean, it's there's not much to the trailer. It's just a lot of imagery. Uh, naturally, it is coasting a little on the nostalgia of Ghostbusters, but that seems to come with the package. It's a Ghostbusters movie. It's a sequel to three other movies. Yes, I do consider the third one part of the canon, and... Uh, I can justify that however I like. Um, Yeah, I think it looks pretty cool. The the imagery looks great. Um, Another weird criticism is everyone says, oh, they're turning it into Stranger Things. I don't see that at all. I mean, yes, it has a kid from Stranger Things in it, but I don't see how that's like, quote, giving it the Stranger Things treatment. And then I saw a couple uh talking heads say that it looks like a Zack Snyder movie. That's just patently false. No it doesn't. In what way does this trailer look like a Zack Snyder movie? None. You know, like I could I could say that it also looks like a Terrence Malick movie because it has wheat in it. It's whatever. But I'm into it and I'm curious. I think it's going to be cool. I think it's going to kick ass and if it doesn't, I would like to think that I could move on with my life all the same. Um, I do like that it seems that all of the Ghostbusters are going to be back, including my favorite Ghostbuster, Janine. Um, She is definitely a major character in this, it seems, based on the trailer. And man, oh man, Janine, one of my first crushes. Uh, Also, when I say that they were all going to be back, naturally Harold Ramis will not be back. But he will be there in spirit because he is a goddamned legend. Uh, Two more pieces of news here. Uh, One of them, this one is, is fascinating to me. Uh, There's a new documentary out about Anthony Bourdain called Roadrunner. I believe the subtitle is a movie about Anthony Bourdain. Um, I saw this movie. It was decent. Um, I definitely enjoyed it. It is a documentary that is about the life and times of Anthony Bourdain, how he became a celebrity. And it sort of does have a, a gray cloud hanging over it because of his untimely demise. An issue popped up with a couple things in this movie uh, in terms of the ethics of a documentary. And it's fascinating stuff. I'm of two minds about it all. But the gist is there are a few audio portions in this documentary where narration by Bourdain himself is saying some things that it would seem Bourdain could not have said. For example, there's a scene where one of his friends reads a letter That Bourdain had written to him. Midway through his recitation of the letter, it shifts into Bourdain reading this letter. It stands to reason that Bourdain was never put into a studio to read this letter out loud, so how is this possible? Well, come to find out, this is a deep fake. It's a deep fake using old audio clips of Bourdain's voice to recreate new audio from bourdain now the ethics of this are pretty intense because you're essentially putting words into the mouth of a dead man but i'm sort of of two minds about it because on the one hand as far as my research has been able to to show me this was only applied in the movie to make bourdain's voice say things that he had written So it does not seem that there are any instances of sentences or thoughts being constructed completely out of thin air. It seems that it's just an audio recreation of something that he did say just through a pen as opposed to through his mouth. It's still a little wonky ethically, but I don't personally have that much of a problem with them doing this. Partially because, as I said, they're not making him say anything that he outright did not say. But mostly because this is far from the first piece of dishonesty to be introduced into documentary filmmaking. And uh, dishonesty is even kind of strong. Now, whereas it would have been nice, and I think could probably have undercut all of the problems... If the filmmakers straight up said at the outset, you won't be able to tell, but there are audio portions of narration from Bourdain that we created in a sound lab. I think if they came up front about it, it would be a little bit easier to swallow for a lot of critics of this move. Um, on the other hand, you know, maybe trying not to call attention to it is, is the smart way. We'll never know. But as it played out, they did not call attention to it. Uh, audience members and I are are always savvier than anyone ever gives them credit for. And this is a case where people immediately picked up on it. said that is impossible for him to have said this. He is deceased and he did not sit in a studio to record this letter. Whoopsie daisy. So now they have to answer for it. Uh, The director of the film, Morgan Neville, he did 20 feet from stardom. Uh, He did. Won't you be my neighbor? The Music of Strangers, Best of Enemies, you know, pretty pretty talented documentarian. Um, in an interview, kind of dismissed these charges and just like, eh, we can have an ethics panel on it later. Probably not the most tasteful way to go about it, but I also am willing to chalk that up to, you know, something being taken out of context and blown up and turned into a Twitter headline, as all things tend to do. Um, I do think this is a technology to look out for, though. This, like anything involved with deepfakes, can get very dangerous very quickly. Um, there are a lot of, as I said, dishonest tactics used in documentary filmmaking already. Um, one need only look at, and here, this is a movie that I very much like. I enjoy Bowling for Columbine, but like, for example, there's a segment in that movie where we see uh, Charlton Heston giving a speech. And it is an unbroken speech. Yes, we cut away from it, but the audio treats everything he says as one speech the video, you'll notice that his tie changes color throughout this segment. So if you're looking closely, you'll find out that this stream of thought that he's putting forward is actually a bunch of collected editorialized broken thoughts. I don't have a problem with this because they're not necessarily saying that this is one fell swoop audio clip, but there is some dishonesty there. But this trick has been around for as long as documentaries have, so we are aware of it and can make a look. And like I said, audiences are smarter than you give them credit for. And I think that it's okay to pitch a movie to to, to resonate with the smartest person in the room. You're not teaching people. That's when you try and speak to the dumbest person in the room. Um, I think for the sake of art and for the sake of just, like, quality stuff, you should be playing to the smartest member of the audience And then discussion will shake out the rest. And I think that is essentially what Bowling for Columbine tries to do. Uh, They do another thing in Bowling for Columbine, um, not to harp on it, as I said, I do like this movie, where they interview the South Park guys, Trey Parker and Matt Stone. And then shortly thereafter, we move to an animated portion that's very South Park inspired, both in the visuals and in the voices, that Trey Parker and Matt Stone had nothing to do with. At no point does this movie expressly say that they made this cartoon, but the connection is strong enough that people would assume that. Granted, the smartest person in the room would do a little research and find out that Trey Parker and Matt Stone did not do anything with this cartoon, therefore, whatever. But it's these little stretches there, these little pieces of just, like, withheld information that I think can be charges of dishonesty. So... We know, as smart documentary viewers, to look out for these things. And I think when it comes to audio deepfakes and video deepfakes, this kind of stuff, it is inevitable. It is coming. I think there's an ethical way to do it and an unethical way to do it. But I think it's real. the the real takeaway here is, as a viewer, we just have to keep our eyes on it. We have to be able to look at a movie like Roadrunner and say, boom, right there. Bourdain could not have said that. Did he write it? Okay, let's talk about it. I think as, if we're vigilant, it's fine. But to try and put our foot down and say that this is disgusting or wrong or unethical, um, I think it's it's kind of just too little too late for that kind of thing. These techniques exist, and the best that we can do is be, be vigilant of them. And I honestly don't think that Neville was trying to do something like pull the wool over our eyes or anything like that. I think this was more a situation of he was trying to create something immersive and got caught in kind of a wonky ethical gray area. But um, I do recommend the movie. I do think that it's going to rub some people the wrong way because of where it lands at the end. Uh, You can check out my review on scullyvision.com to see how I responded to the end of this. It comes pretty harsh and kind of unfairly at Asia Argento. But I also think that it's the type of honesty that this film is going for. It doesn't quite land there. I was not as offended as, as many were, especially since Argento has proven to be uh, not the most, uh, not the least villainous person. But um, that said, I think the movie would have been more complete to actually involve her. Um, at the same time, if I were her, I could understand not wanting to be involved. Um, last piece of news that I have is this actually just happened this morning, and I might be speaking out of turn because this is another one of those things that got very uh vocal from a very lot of lot of people very quickly, and if I'm being honest, I don't actually know a lot about it. Um, there's a new movie that came out this week called Stillwater, Tom McCarthy's story about Bill Baker, a character played by Matt Damon. Um, and the trials and tribulations of him trying to get his daughter out of jail who has been imprisoned overseas in France under some very dubious circumstances it's a pretty good movie um, I wasn't blown away by it but I think that it's pretty solid um, really great performances across the board Camille Cotton or Katine I don't know how to pronounce it realize the runaway performance Damon is great in it his goatee gives an incredible performance um i I think overall it's a good movie and it's one that's ballsy enough to land in a complicated area um we often especially in like message movies like this uh adhere to a binary and unfortunately as with most things in life a binary is just not accurate um very few things exist in a binary besides binary code i actually can't think of a thing that exists in a binary um I guess, I guess the, the only thing I can think of existing in a binary is like you've got people who like Back to the Future, and you've got people who are wrong. But beyond that, everything else is a, uh, is, a is an issue. So the natural point of comparison in Stillwater because of the plot is the story from many years back of the murder of Meredith Kircher and the uh, non-involvement of Amanda Knox, who was held in a prison, I believe in Italy for four years before being exonerated. And so in response to Stillwater, uh, Amanda Knox has come out and spoken against the film and did so through a Twitter thread and a Medium article that are both very worth reading and uh, very worth checking out. They're very nuanced and thoughtful. And I think it's actually really cool that she spoke up, even if I don't 100% agree with what she's saying. Um, I'm going to be paraphrasing here, so uh, I I implore you to go read the thread and read the medium piece, so that if there are any instances here of me misrepresenting Ms. Knox, uh, that it can be, you know, filled by her words. Um, first and foremost, I'd like to say that in my review for Stillwater, I did make a reference to Amanda Knox. I have since removed that from my review because of her thoughtful response because I think she is right from one angle. And the angle is whereas I think it's it's oh this is gonna be a tough one. Oh boy. Oh boy. Um I think it is strange that let's rewind that. Let's start back this all started because in a vanity fair interview tom mccarthy who wrote co-wrote and directed the movie indicated that the amanda knox uh, i think saga was the term that he used was a jumping off point for his movie um i think all of this could have been avoided if he hadn't said that because if you watch Stillwater, it is not about amanda knox it is a completely fictionalized account yes there are elements to excuse me there are elements to the plot that someone could draw parallels to it, but to say that this is the Amanda Knox story is, uh, it's just not accurate. It's a fictional account that, you know, is is based on that. You know, it's the same as like, uh, I mean, I'd say it's, it's less pointed than something like Citizen Kane, uh, because Citizen Kane, we all know, is about Hearst, even though it's not expressly about Hearst. This one, I think it's really just the Knox the story was a uh, jumping off point. But Nox was, was rightfully upset uh, by this notion. She's saying, hey, you know, if you really did draw inspiration from this story that I was involved in, and actually to hear her say it was not involved in, um, then perhaps you should have consulted her. And perhaps they should have. There is a gray area here, though. It's that if you do consult her then the movie becomes about her, and I don't think that the movie's goal is to make any sort of commentary on the Knox-Kircher events. Um, The other issue that I have with it is, you know, I'm glad that Knox is speaking up, but I also think it is worth pointing out that her saying, like, oh, referring to even, you know, the events of her life as the Amanda Knox story is wrong, it should be the Meredith Kircher story. And she is correct. Uh, In dealing with true crime, we should always make an aim to be victim forward. And uh, at the same time, though, I think that there is a little bit of dishonesty here because Amanda Knox has, has done quite a lot of work to keep her name front and center and attached to this story. Uh, I don't mean this to take away from a lot of the advocacy work that she's done and a lot of the great work that she's she's done uh, in similar, you know, in advocating for people in similar circumstances as what she found herself in. Um, so I, I think that there is a gray area there. I'm, I'm of both minds here where I can see why Knox is upset. And I think that uh, just the sheer the amount of material that she puts forth in this Twitter thread and in the medium piece is a lot of very thoughtful and uh, necessary stuff for this conversation. On the other hand, I don't think that's the Stillwater people owe her shit. Um, I think they fucked up by saying that, uh, you know, that that this movie was directly inspired by her, even if it's not about her. Um, I, I think that was a fuck up. And I think that that was probably a bad move. But I don't think we can all sit around and pretend that that's not immediately what our minds went to. Had McCarthy made that connection or not, seeing a movie about someone wrongfully imprisoned overseas just naturally invokes thoughts of Amanda Knox's story. Um, and and I, I am aware that I'm not calling it the Meredith Kircher story. I intend to do that moving forward, but I think for the sake of the podcast here, it is something that... Uh, that just for the sake of, of cleanliness of thought here in a straight line, I want to keep calling it that. I think it's dishonest to, to, to just act like we wouldn't all immediately go there. I think it's also dishonest to act as if Amanda Knox is not, uh, integral to that being our thought process. Um, But like I said, I think she has every right to be mad, and I think she has every right to be speaking out. So I will remain Switzerland in this. I will stay in the center, and I will say that, one, you should read the thread and her blog post about it. Um, Two, I think that she has every right to speak up and an obligation to speak up, I think, because it is valid for people's stories to be used against their will, for that to be an upsetting and distressing thing. Um, I also think that you should see Stillwater. I think that it's a good movie, and I don't think that it owes anybody anything. Um, I would like to see, though, Knox did invite McCarthy and the writers onto a podcast to discuss it, and I think in the nature of, just in the eye of discussing that sort of thing, that would be awesome. I think that, that would be the, the ideal ending there. But um, to me, I think the sickest thing about it all is not tastelessness on the part of the movie or not um you know some of the the I don't want to say it too strongly I don't think it's it's you know Knox not more tasteless than Knox not owning up to the fact that she has kept this the Amanda she's been instrumental in keeping this story associated with her name that's not tasteless to me it is what it is um stillwater uh invoking her name in an interview um that is not necessarily tasteless to me what is really tasteless to me is everybody turning this into their own personal crusade on twitter every single person is retweeting it and being like oh she's so brave and this ties to me too and this ties to men stealing women's stories and this and that and every blog is trying to turn this into their own personal soapbox and that to me is a little bit tasteless and honestly, I guess I could be accused of doing that here and covering this in the news portion of the show, but uh, at the same time, I, I I just I guess I'm just gonna hide behind the fact that I I remain in the middle. I don't think anybody sucks here. I think everybody is doing their best to figure out what entertainment and storytelling in a post you know true crime world looks like. I'm a big fan of true crime, and one of the hardest things to reconcile is the notion that real suffering is at the heart of true crime and i find it very entertaining and for the output of entertainment to be a thing the input is suffering murder torture awful shit so uh really uh i'll say it one more time you should read her thread you should read her blog and if it's the type of thing that interests you i think that Stillwater is a movie worth watching um and i guess i'll just looking back at my notes about this i will say that like you know nobody got their their balls twisted uh when gone girl uh very very heavily leaned into the imagery of scott peterson and uh and i think smartly so you know like i i actually think it's good to tie into these things and um that said you know i i can understand Knox wanting to be contacted did i say enough did i ramble enough about that all right so that is our news and um in just a sec we're gonna get into vhs and after vhs uh i'm going to be talking about some real life found footage and some of my favorites and some cool stuff that you can look up Alright, that little dumb tone thing I just did there indicates that we're back from the break. I might have a commercial between news and the bulk of the episode. I also might not. I'm still learning. Or, as Apocalypse would have said, I'm still learning. Remember that? I actually didn't hate that movie as much as uh, everyone else seemed to but it was not great it was definitely uh and, and i honestly don't get how olivia munn went from being such a charismatic presence on tv to being just completely devoid of any and all emotion in movies but she was in that you may not remember anywho we're gonna talk about vhs V H i'm sorry i'm obsessed with this stupid little steel drum that my parents got me for christmas it's nice so VHS is a really cool movie it is probably my favorite horror anthology. I think the reason that I love it is because it mixes a few of my favorite things about about you know my favorite subgenres of horror one of course being the anthology and the other being found footage. Um, I know that found footage gets a bad rap and uh, it's not one that is completely unearned. Uh, there are a lot of films that use the found footage conceit in order, frankly, to be lazy. Um, But it also provides great opportunity and a great window for creativity to shine through if one is so inclined. Um, You know, we look back at something like Cannibal Holocaust and that was actually deemed to be real found footage and not just a genre exercise. And uh, Ruggero Deodato, uh, sorry if I pronounced that wrong, I've only ever read it. And I did just get Raiders of Atlantis. Ooh. But um, yeah, that's, a, he actually had to like prove that it was a fictional story. So found footage when done right can be very believable. Uh, the Blair Witch Project, that uh, leaned upon public belief for quite some time. Um, even knowing that that was not actually true, it was very effective and they marketed it as such. And in doing so, like set off kind of the new wave of found footage. What I like about found footage is one of my favorite things in the world is watching actual, you know, camera video of weird shit. Be it video of crimes, of proposed supernatural events, or as we'll get into after we discuss the movie for a little bit, uh, just like real world events that you can't believe were caught on camera. There's something so exciting about that. I, I think perhaps being raised on things like Unsolved Mysteries, I've always had a bit of a fondness for the form. So when found footage is done right, it's just the best. When it's done bad, well, you know, it can be pretty sleepy. I think VHS actually does it right more than it doesn't. Um, They do a really good job of answering the question that always comes up in found footage, namely, which is with clenched fists, why are you still filming? And as we go through each of the entries in the VHS film, uh, they actually managed to validate that in a lot of different ways. And also what's cool about VHS is it kind of goes across some other subgenres as well so not only is this you know a bunch of different stories but there's also like other mini subgenres. there's a monster movie there's like a real world crime movie there's a slasher there's sort of like an ira levin you know rosemary's baby they're they're all out to get me but i don't know it kind of thing and there's a classic haunted house one so um yeah let me i want to pull up the wikipedia here just so i can credit everybody with their segments but let's get into it uh the first segment is actually introduced as the wraparound segment and it's funny because reading reviews of this, there are a lot of issues that people have with it. Namely, that the wraparound segment stars a bunch of bros who are involved in a very, very, very bad thing. I mean, the first act that happens in this segment, titled Tape 56, which was directed by Adam Wingard of *Your are Next and The Guest, and co-written between him and Simon Barrett, two of my favorites, uh, being a frame narrative. You know, they don't really have much to do except sort of connect the tapes. But being that this is a Wingard film, it gets a little little hardcore right off the bat. These dudes, which could be generously described as a bunch of bros, ungenerously described as a bunch of criminals slash rapists, are making on-the-street pornography. Basically, they're filming assaults. And at the very beginning, they quite literally find a random woman in the parking garage, garage attack her, and pull out her tits. Uh, really upsetting stuff. Um, I think that this probably rubs people the wrong way because it is, you know, like I said, pretty upsetting. It's, it's an awful act to do. But at the same time, I think it establishes these wraparound guys as both awful and therefore expendable. And... If I may be crude, their interplay is quite darkly funny, especially when you, you know, just by the nature of the project, understand that they are doomed. So uh, it's pretty hardcore stuff, and it's stuff that that is not not in the real world. There are urban sharking videos that are really upsetting stuff. But anywho, the wraparound story is essentially this. Uh, They have been hired, offered a large sum of money to break into a house, And get a single VHS tape. And when they do it, wouldn't you know, there are a bunch of VHS tapes. And it is difficult for them to determine which one. Uh, Their financier, if you will, says, oh, you'll know it when you see it. But apparently they don't. So they have to start going through them. But what makes this so upsetting is that there's a dead guy in the house. Uh, Not seemingly dead by any sort of... uh, extrajudicial means like there's no foul play it seems he just seems to be an old guy that died in his chair while watching family guy reruns which is kind of how i hope to go out um so yeah this is their job and uh these guys are going to make this tape and use it to finance their next porn tape where instead of titties they're going to be doing upskirts it is horrifying stuff but i think Oh, this could sound terrible, but I'll say it anyway. One of the things that is kind of crazy about some hardcore horror is that they also do double as titty movies, if you will. And this is something that we have moved beyond but comment upon regularly. And I choose to accept the VHS, and I think it was actually purported as a commentary on that. Uh, Whether it's one that actually sticks the landing is kind of up to you. But um, in no way does this frame what these guys are doing as a good thing. But I think there is a silent understanding that uh, nudity kind of does tie to horror. Um, I wouldn't say universally, but it is something that is in horror's history pretty heavily. Um, Sometimes functionally well, sometimes shamefully so, but always worthy of conversation. And I think that's what they're going for here. Like I said, the wraparound story is what it is, but uh, each tape that these guys play as they explore the house and do random bits of vandalism is one of the short films. Excellent framing device, if I do say so myself. If there's one downside about VHS, it's that I think it kind of blows its wad on the first tape. My favorite of the entire bunch is is called Amateur Night. It is directed by David Bruckner, written by Bruckner and Nicholas Tikoski. You might know David Bruckner. He has done a lot of really cool movies. He did a movie that I hope to cover here on the show called The Signal. Um, He, at one point, was tied to a Friday the 13th reboot, but it didn't happen. He did do another anthology film called Southbound, which was quite wonderful, and had a lot of success with a film that I believe premiered on Netflix called The Ritual, which I highly recommend as a... uh, really solid drama with creature feature uh stuff in it oh wow hard to do this and there's no one else to talk to got a new movie coming out later this year called the night house with rebecca hall that i'm very excited about and i think should be good um amateur night i think is where a lot of people who were off put by the wraparound story check out again because As I understand it, the filmmakers did not speak to one another in terms of what they were doing, so where there's crossover, both thematically and plot wise, is sheerly accidental. That said, the opening of Amateur Night, we learn that the device that they're using to shoot this found footage is a pair of glasses that have a hidden camera on them. Clever idea to keep this, you know, to keep the why are they filming thing going. But where people might jump off board with this is that the ultimate plan is to go to the bar, find some ladies, and then covertly make a porno tape of whatever sexual exploits they get into that night. And that, as we all know, is is a terrible, awful, wrong thing to do. On the one hand, this might make you feel uncomfortable. On the other hand, this means that this trio of assholes at the center of the story can be ripped to shreds and we're not going to feel anything about it. The latter seems to be true i really enjoy this one because i enjoy a good monster movie and that's what this is also these guys their interplay with one another is very true to life in a lot of bro situations that i've been in now granted my friends and i are not rapists so we do not film women that we're having sex with against their will but we have gone out with the intentions of getting drunk and getting laid and we're too drunk and we're doing stupid shit and these guys have that exact repartee it's really spot on to the point where if you're into this sort of thing it's rather funny uh one guy is kind of the dumbass one guy is kind of the evil one and then the kid with the camera he's like the one who's a little bit hesitant but hesitant doesn't count if you go through with it he does unfortunately for them they pick up two women at the bar one who passes out and uh surprising to me our trio of guys stop pursuing her once she does although that's not without resistance and then the second one is a little bit strange she has something weird about her she's sniffing people she speaks uh, in sort of a breathy whisper and as it turns out is a succubus who uh, rips one guy's dick off rips another guy to shreds and flies our cameraman off into the distance because she likes him uh, it, it, it's absolutely terrifying the way that they do it it's such a good use of found footage and i think what i like about it is the central performance from the uh actress i'm gonna pull up her name here her, her character name is lily and interestingly enough this segment did sort of have kind of a spin-off in 2016 in a film called siren where the same actress hannah fireman fearman it's f-i-e-r um Excuse me, where she uh, plays a similar creature in a similar world. Um, They're not directly connected. There are, uh, it it is technically based on the short film here in VHS and based on the characters, but it's not really connected to anything plot-wise. Decent little movie. I didn't love Siren, but I, I did enjoy it. But yeah, Hannah Fireman gives this absolutely terrifying performance. The makeup and special effects in order to turn her from a striking but sort of odd-looking woman into a split-faced, winged, contortionisty succubus is uh, it's impressive, and it's absolutely terrifying. This is the kind of film that you'd be smart to close your movie with because it's so energetic and so insane. But it's also smart to open your movie with it, because what a hook. Uh, this was kind of where I fell in love with this movie. The The first time I saw it, and I've told this story on the, on the podcast before, was I just randomly saw VHS back when I lived alone and had nothing to do one night. It was playing one night only, and I was like, eh, screw it, I'll check it out. Ended up being blown away, and it was during this succubus thing where they sort of tease that she might be something weird. Maybe she's a vampire. Maybe she's a werewolf. And then, lo and behold, she's this ancient character. It's, oh man, it's absolutely insane. What a great way to start off the film. I guess there's not too much more to say about that. I, I think that uh, as the monster movie segment, it, it really delivers on everything that you want from a monster movie. It keeps that found footage aspect alive and... I know, it just really shows off what Bruckner is capable of as a filmmaker. And like I said earlier, I think that these kinds of movies are really good opportunities, almost as a reel, to showcase young and upcoming filmmakers. And this really shows off what Bruckner can do. Um, I'll check my notes here before we move on to the next thing. I got nothing there. I, the one thing that's very clever about the direction is before lily the succubus character enters the film she is sort of lingering in frame up until then and it's the kind of thing that it never calls attention to her but the way that she looks the way that she makes eye contact with the camera really draws the eye so a few minutes before she ever speaks to the lead group here she's already kind of a part of it you already sort of get like an unsettling feeling about her but not without recognizing that she's not unattractive. She is somebody that, like, you know, before you speak to her, you, you would feel comfortable speaking to at the bar. Um, but, yeah, it is a, it's a horrifying ending. And on the, uh, on the disc, you can actually watch this really amazing short about Bruckner and crew filming the flight of the succubus by taking balloons and tying them to a camera. And the nerves on Bruckner's face as he is inflating balloons, which apparently he's afraid of, as well as tying an expensive camera to something that could just fly off into the atmosphere, is really a lot of fun. But, you know, this is the kind of, uh, you know, low-budget, MacGyver-esque filmmaking that you gotta do when you make this kind of thing. So yeah, the second one, the second film here of Five is called second honeymoon this is written and directed by ty west he did the innkeepers he did house of the devil um the sacrament uh oh shit what else did he do in the valley of violence i believe it's called i've not seen that one and i gotta say i i am rooting for ty west i'm not entirely on board with ty west i am the guy who doesn't much care for the house of the devil i think it's boring i think it's just a reminder of a bunch of other movies that did it better I think that uh innkeepers has some great moments in it but that's another like nothing happens kind of movie that despite having great central performances just doesn't do it for me i i'm rooting for him and i'm willing to rewatch both of those again i've done it before and it still doesn't get me i do like the sacrament quite a bit um i believe that's what it's called let's look that up the sacrament yes I, I enjoy The Sacrament. I do think that it fucks up a little bit because it actually breaks the framing device of the uh, found footage in a way that, uh, you know, you, you, it's blink if you miss it. But if you think about it the way that, you know, you think about Anthony Bourdain speaking from beyond the grave, you go, wait a minute, that doesn't add up. But nonetheless, it's a fucking horrifying movie. Not quite as horrifying as if you listen to the actual Jonestown tapes, but, eh, you know. Who who wants to do that on a Friday? Ty West's entry, Second Honeymoon, is written and directed by Ty West, but the camera operators are essentially Joe Swanberg and, uh, oh no, what is is the other actress's name? They are a couple that are on a second honeymoon. It's like a road trip, Uh, and it's actually rather basic. It's uh, really well done. I think this actually might be my favorite work of Ty West's because of the way that the plot unfolds. Swanberg plays sort of a version of himself, kind of a schlubby guy. Uh, with him is an actress who goes by the name of. Oh man, this is so tough. The new IMDb lineup is not exactly ideal, but we'll get there. I'm still in Amateur Night. You gotta like keep fucking scrolling because every bar patron is credited. Which I guess you want to. Stephanie, played by Sophia Takal, a filmmaker who uh, has made some, some of her own movies that are quite good. She uh, directed the remake of Black Christmas. She did Into the Dark, Always Shine, Green. Um, so, talented filmmaker, but in this she plays uh, the other half of the couple, Joe Swanberg and her. His name is Sam in this. And it's really basic. It's just a couple checking into a shitty motel. He wants to film them having sex or making out, and she rejects it. And then that night, a random person knocks on their door. Kind of a creepy lady. You get the sense that this is in, like, Meth Town, USA. And that's that. The big scare comes at night when both parties go to bed, and the camera that they're filming their trip with is activated, and it's filming Joe Swanberg in bed. And then the camera pans to the right, and we see Sophia call Stephanie there. And so it becomes clear that neither of them are operating the camera. The person with the camera starts fucking around with a knife, starts uh, poking and prodding at at Stephanie's butt with a knife without waking her, uh, puts Sam's (laughs) toothbrush in the toilet, And, you know, then we cut away. What's really funny is the next scene opens up and has a great sense of humor. It opens with Sam brushing his teeth with the now befouled toothbrush. (laughs) It's a really, really great reveal on that uh, to kind of lighten from that scare. Uh, During the day, the uh, traveling couple recognizes that some money has gone missing, that something might not be right, but, you know, nobody really thinks that anybody was in their hotel room at night. And, of course, the next night, Same thing happens, and this one ends in one of the most brutal throat cuttings I have ever seen commit to film. It's absolutely disgusting. We watch Sam gurgle to death, and we get this incredible reveal that not only is Sam now dead, but this camera woman is actually in some sort of a relationship with Stephanie. And even though Stephanie rejected doing sexy things on camera with Sam, her and the killer... Uh, played here by Caitlin Scheel. Uh they're making out on camera, and that's really the whole of it. I think what's so scary about this is that anybody who has ever been uh, on the on a road trip with their better half, there is a certain level of exposure to that. You know, there there's uh, you're on the move. Uh, now it's a little different than it was, you know, thirty years ago because you have your cell phones. You're kind of always on the grid. But there's still this feeling of being exposed. Anything can happen. Your car can break down. You might have to sleep rough. You're sleeping in a hotel that you know may or may not be fully clean. It's not ideal. The pillows suck. The sheets are warm and cold somehow. Uh, You can't see under the bed because there's probably a dead hooker under the bed. Just weird shit like that. And it's not always easy to do. Sometimes being on a trip like that, some tensions arise. And I think in this film we do get to see a lot of those tensions arise, uh, even if ever so quietly, it just feels very real and very lived in. And so as this plays out, I, I think it's actually especially tough when you're like the, the guy in the relationship to look at this because, it, you know, it's not always fair, but you are the protector. You're, you're typically the bigger, stronger entity in this. So when shit goes down, you might have to be the one to, you know, come to blows with somebody. Um, Ugh! I don't want to ever have to do that. I'm a runner. I'm not saving anybody's life. So this this kind of invokes that fear for everybody involved. But I felt like be you know being in a hetero relationship with a female, I'm always afraid that uh, if anybody breaks into our house or fucks with us on vacation, uh, it is gonna be me who's gonna have to step up. And I am a pussy. But uh, I guess I can throw a punch. I don't know. But if you stab me in the neck while I'm sleeping, guess what? You win. Not coming back from that. Oh, that was so gross. But yeah, I think this is like a really a really solid entry. And um, coming into VHS, I was like, like I said, kind of not entirely sold on Ty West as a filmmaker. But I think that here it really shows how creative he is, not just as a filmmaker, but as a writer. I think the writing in this segment is strong. So the third segment is called Tuesday the 17th. Um, so yeah, the first one was our monster segment. The second one was sort of our true crime, even though it wasn't true. Tuesday the 17th kind of goes full on slasher, but it's also the first to really play with the concept of VHS itself. This one is written and directed by Glenn McQuaid. Um, he is a regular uh, fixture in Glass Eye Picks, uh, which is Larry Fessenden's production company. He did a really excellent movie called I Sell the Dead. Uh, which if you haven't seen it, you should definitely, definitely check that out. I'm looking at the Wikipedia here, and uh, it indicates that he sees Cronenberg as an influence, and I think that that is a very fair thing to say, Um, especially watching something like I Sell the Dead. Tuesday the 17th, I think what's so interesting about this here is that it is is sort of a... It's kind of like a, a slasher sequel, if you will. We don't know that going up. There are a group of tropes sort of entering into this. There is a virginal girl. There is like a cheerleader. Uh, you know, I don't want to call her the slut, but like, you know, if this is a Friday the 13th movie, that's that's what role should be. There's a dumb jock. There's kind of a nerd that doesn't want to do drugs. You know, like that kind of a thing. And they're all driving out to the woods and filming this vacation. At first, it does sort of feel... Like, why are you filming? Because this one is rather funny up front. Um, These characters are really a lot of fun to hang with. And they're filming every moment of this trip into the woods. They go into the woods. They go skinny dipping. The water's cold. But this is a VHS recording. And the tracking is a little bit off. And our quote-unquote virginal host here... She starts doing some creepy things. We see her in the periphery of the screen, kind of doing a glare. She explicitly says to somebody, you're all going to fucking die out here. And everyone's kind of like happy to dismiss it because, you know, party time. It's what we do. People say stupid shit and she kind of makes it, you know, into a joke. But slowly but surely, the tracking starts to become more prominent in how it's fucked up. And then it starts to look like there's an entity within the visual alterations as put forth by the tracking. In my head, the way that this guy is sort of framed, he looks like bloody raghead from Time Crimes. We never actually get to see a, a, a full embodiment of this, but we do get to see the action of this slasher. No one can seem to see him in the real world, but you can see him through the tape. And therein lies the answer to the question, why are you filming? We're filming because this has happened before. And our creepy virginal girl, she was the survivor. The final girl of the first time around, as you know we are made to assume by the end of this. And she invited her friends up here, not to party in the lake, not to smoke pot and do stupid things and fuck in the woods. They are bait. Bait to draw this character that can only be seen through a camera out so that she can enact a bunch of Rambo slash Kevin McAllister style traps to stop this guy once and for all. And that's really what it is. This is a parade of some really gruesome kills followed by a final girl moment of her doing, you know, come get me. Ha ha ha, I beat you. And then naturally, as people are wont to do, forgetting that this guy is a magical killer. And even though she has put him in a trap, he can essentially just glitch out and appear somewhere else, where he, you know, which is essentially what he does. This is such a cool middle of the... This is the direct middle of the movie segment. I think that this is such a cool middle of the movie segment to have because it's kind of like a lighter, fun one. You know, the first two have that rapey element. The second one is just like really, really hardcore. This one's cartoonish. This one's fun. This one's kind of light. This gives us the pleasures that a Friday the 13th movie gives us where we don't necessarily care about these people. They're not necessarily good or bad, but they're colorful. They're purposefully tropes and they get destroyed in some of the most gruesome ways. There's some brutal stabbings here. Um, there's a really, really comical guy gets his throat slit and then later wanders back into frame very, very much devoid of blood and unable to think. And it's played for shocks, but it's also played for laughs. And I really appreciate this one for kind of lightening things up in the middle of it. Uh, McQuaid does a really good job utilizing the found footage format by having this killer being part of the actual tape itself. Uh, I think it's just a really... A really good way like i said to answer that question of why are you still filming i don't have much else to say about that one uh, some of the characters behave illogically and do things that that you you know you want to stand up and be like why are you approaching this killer that's in a bear trap who's swinging his knife of course he's going to stab you in the gut that's what he's here to do why would you just go running up to him but I would like to categorize that, file that under why is she running upstairs instead of out the front door, if I could misquote scream for a second. I think that these things are on purpose, and so this satisfies the slasher stuff. The next film is directed by Joe Swanberg, one of the stars of The uh, Second Honeymoon, and it's written by Simon Barrett, who co-wrote the wraparound story, wrote The Guest, uh, wrote uh, one of my favorites, You're Next, uh, wrote and directed a film that he has out this year called Seance, which I have not gotten to see yet, but I hear great things about. This one is called The Sick Thing That Happened to Emily When She Was Younger. I have a fondness for this one because on the night that I went to see VHS, they, uh, there wasn't a lot of people in the theater, but they had posters that they were giving out if you could answer trivia. The first two trivia questions was just your standard VHS poster. The final and ostensibly most difficult question was an autographed print of a poster that's based around this entry. Um, Long story short, I won all three posters. I did a thing where I was trying to hold out uh, because I wanted to win the last one, even though I knew the answers to the questions, but no one else knew the answers. The uh, first question someone asked, what franchise features a killer doll possessed by charles lee ray i think that's how it went and i didn't raise my hand even though i knew it was child's play because i if questions are this easy and nobody's raising their hand in the theater then this last poster is easily going to be mine i'm cocky like that nobody raised their hand nobody raised their hand finally someone raises his hand and says chucky and they said no that's inaccurate so i bit the bullet i raised man said child's play and they gave me the poster, and uh, that was that. And then I forget what the second question was, but the same sort of thing happened where nobody answered, and I raised my hand and I won a duplicate of the same poster. And I said to the to the representative in the theater, I said, "Listen, I don't actually want this poster. Like, I can I can someone else take these just so I can be eligible for this final cool poster." And A couple people in the theater said that they would like those posters so i just gave them to a couple of people and then the third question was who played hannibal lecter prior to sir anthony hopkins and the answer to that is yes you guessed it brian cox in the wonderful film manhunter and so i immediately got that one right i got the final poster and law at Here's the fun twist. At the end of the day, when the movie ended and we all left, the people who who I gave the other posters to uh, threw them in the trash. So I actually got all three posters. But the poster I have is based on this entry. The sick thing that happened to Emily when she was younger. This is the first instance that I've ever seen. I don't think it's the first instance that there was. But the first instance that I had ever seen of what is now called a screen life movie. Um, we have seen an uptick in screen life movies post COVID since we all communicate with each other over Zoom and things like that. Screen life movies are movies that take place entirely on a computer screen. So the Den, Unfriended, uh, Host. There's a lot of really good ones. I I get the sense that we're gonna see a lot of them as we phase out of COVID or or phase back in. We don't know where, where we are yet with that. Um, We're going to see a lot more of these. Uh, The sentiment in the world of film has been, hey, please don't do this nonstop. But I think that it should be more of, please don't do this unless you have a story that's conducive to it. Because if you're just doing a screen life movie, because that's an easy way to get a movie done, I think that chances are you're going to end up falling victim to the same criticism that happens with most found footage, which is, you did this because it's easy. That said, as I understand it, uh, when uh, they made Host, that was why they made Host the way they did, and that movie is absolutely terrifying, so I should just go fuck myself with these comments. This one here in VHS takes the form of a phone conversation between a woman named Emily and her boyfriend James. Um, Immediately it's clear that James is in med school and he wants to be a doctor, And he is very far away from Emily, and so they're having a long distance relationship. What's so cool about this entry is that she plays a woman who knows that her house is haunted by something and seems to be informed by a lifetime of horror movies. She is not afraid of this haunting. Her approach is, what can I learn about this haunting, and therefore, how can I stop it? She even makes a, uh, a comment where she says, like, oh, maybe this haunting just wants me to, like, find its body or something. You know, something like the ring. Pardon me for a second while I drink this water. Mm. I love my swell water bottle. It keeps things cold. Probably would keep things hot, too, but I just don't want to do that. I'm drink hot. So, Emily has this haunting in her house, and uh, it takes the form of in the periphery of her screen it looks like children popping up and slamming doors and doing things like that and it's such a fun dynamic between emily and james because james is more of a skeptic and he is like hey you know maybe that was just the the wind blowing it shut but what's so beautiful is that he is like very supportive of her wanting to investigate some would say suspiciously so but i think that the uh the the real reason that this works uh partially that you know the script is is quite good but the performance from Helen Rogers who plays Emily is such an odd performance because i don't want to say that she sounds spaced out because she doesn't she she sounds put together but she's very atypical to what you would have of a woman in this situation in a classic horror movie she, like i said she's not afraid she's actually very inquisitive But she plays it with sort of a, I'll say a spacey air. And smartly so, because this spacey air, we learn, is not because she's spaced out, but it's because maybe she is being a little bit more affected by what's going on than either she or James understands. There's a really great piece of body horror hidden in this, where... She just does like kind of a a reveal on her arm as she's digging into it with a pair of scissors saying, oh, yeah, I have this bruise here. I don't know what it is, but, you know, it's kind of a, you know, it's just kind of weird. It's a it's kind of bothering me, but it's this horribly gruesome thing. And she's picking at it. And James is saying, no, 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 no. Stop, 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 stop. I will be there in a few weeks and I will look at this rash that you have in your arm, this now hole that you have in your arm. And that's where it gets suspicious. Because why would James not be saying go to a doctor if he's going to be there in a week? Lady's got a hole in her fucking forearm. The kind of thing that he says, oh, put some dis- like some peroxide or iodine on it so it doesn't get infected. No, no, go to the doctor and get stitches. But what a brilliant piece of development in Simon Barrett's script here. Because immediately the red flags go off, but because both of these characters play this as normal and play this as their, you know, sort of their relationship that they have, it seems normal, and it kind of holds back me saying, what the fuck is this? You know, it holds that back uh, just for a little bit. There's times where she says, James, why weren't you filming when something haunted happens? Why weren't you filming this? Why weren't you filming that? And it seems suspicious that he doesn't immediately record every call. But the dynamic that they have is playful. It's a little bit spacey. So it feels not Kevin Spacey. That's very scary stuff. Uh, it's a little bit spacey. It's a little bit weird. So it kind of purchases our ability to go along with this and to go along with the found footage concept. I, honestly, watching VHS last night for this episode, I was amazed at how much this segment raised in estimation for me. Like I, I always enjoyed it. I don't want to say that I thought it was forgettable, but it is the. It, it isn't one that I always think of when I think about this movie. And I think that that has changed now. Uh, it's truly unsettling um they do a lot of great i don't want to say jump scares but some cool uh spooky stuff uh my girlfriend jenna always refers to it as bump in the night stuff um i can't watch this movie with her because she likes scary things like she'll fuck with a hereditary but she doesn't like things that go bump in the night so watching a conjuring uh, or watching something like this is just not gonna not gonna uh, really go well with her but uh It's very scary stuff, it's all very sudden, and it's quite clear to see. You know, nothing is hidden too far in the periphery. It's all very aggressive, which makes, once again, the interplay between our characters that much more fun to watch. Of course, there's the reveal. This is the Ira Levin story. The reveal at the end is that, no, no, no. Uh, this guy, James, is not far away. James is just right around the corner. And James has been monitoring Emily. And Emily is one of many hosts ha, that uh, James has been cultivating, uh, who he has a relationship with, and who, as we understand it now, not ghosts, but aliens, have been impregnating with fetuses. An interesting thing that they do is they make James evil, but not evil. You do get the sense that he is also being held hostage by these creatures and is acting as he does because he has no other choice. That said, that's an explanation. But as they say, not an excuse, especially when he's got other women lined up. Uh, This is truly, truly terrifying stuff. I think that it uses the gimmick very, very well. And I'm going to check my notes one more time before we move on. Yeah, this is a this is a screen life movie. Um, there was a movie recently called Profile. Uh, Timur Bekmambatov, I believe is how you pronounce his name, the guy who did Wanted and the Night Watch, Day Watch movies, Day Watch. Ah, he did a, a really really cool screen life movie just this year called Profile that I would love to recommend to you. That is a reporter going undercover as. Um, as we know, there is a pipeline of European young European women getting drawn into ISIS via the internet. And Profile tells the story of a woman who is doing investigative journalism by trying to take that pipeline as far as she can without actually getting drawn into ISIS as an investigation. Uh, naturally, things don't go as planned. It's quite, quite good. I highly recommend Profile. The final segment in VHS is probably my second favorite in the whole thing. This one is made by Radio Silence. Radio Silence is a film collective uh, consisting of Matt Betnelli Open Tyler Gillett, Justin Martinez, and Chad Vallea or Vallela. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce that. I should look that up. And uh, these are the guys that did Ready or Not. Um, These are the guys that are doing the upcoming fifth Scream movie that's called Scream. They were also involved in Southbound. Um, I am very regularly picking up what Radio Silence is putting down. I very much enjoy everything that they do. I think that they are... I'm inspired by what they do. I'm inspired by their work. Um, And really, this goes across the board to all of VHS. I really like... The whole collective that they've put together here, because it's a bunch of people who are friends that make movies because they want to, not necessarily because they can, but because they can carve out the ability to do it. They don't have the finances necessarily, they don't necessarily have the freedom, but you know, it's like the Duplasses say, make make movies with your friends on your phone on weekends, just do it. I love that, and the fact that so many people out of this group are, like, mainstreaming. I mean, fuck, uh, Wingard just did a Godzilla movie. Unbelievable. Truly unbelievable. I am so inspired by that, and I'm currently in the process of writing, directing, and producing a portion of a horror anthology. And I'd be lying if I said I didn't think back to VHS a lot in terms of just inspiration of what what these folks, these... Ladies and gentlemen, have put together. Uh, it, it's really, really remarkable. But this final entry is called 103198, and it takes place on Halloween of 1998. To be fair, this stretches the why are they still filming thing probably as far as it can go. But it's so funny and so clever that I'm willing to go with it that far. Meaning that the framing, not the framing device, sorry, the the device that films this year is that it's four guys going to a Halloween party, and one of them is dressed as a nanny cam. So that means he is essentially dressed as a teddy bear, and there is, for some reason, an actual functioning camera in the costume. They have no means to an end as to why they're filming or what they're filming for, Uh, I don't even know if all of the guys in this party are aware that there's film happening. But he's a nanny cam, and his nanny cam is functional. I'll take it. Four guys get invited to a party at a mysterious location, and they go there, and the house is empty. But the house is a little strange, and they think that this is a haunted house attraction, And it soon becomes very clear that, no, this is a haunted house and they have stumbled upon a demonic act of sorts. So this is a fun house haunted house movie. Uh, Very reminiscent of, I guess, if something like Poltergeist um, or something like The Conjuring was a found footage movie, it would probably look a little something like this. As a departure from the way that the dudes behave in the wraparound story and in the first Uh, amateur night entry, um, as well as the um, even even the uh, what's it called, the uh, slasher one. What I like about this one is that the dudes going to the party—they're not rapey guys, they're not not bros, but they're bros in the lovely sense and not in the negative connotation sense. Um, they're really a lot of fun. They're they they care about one another. Uh, they want to go out and have a good time. Uh, they they. They hold, they they like carry things for one another. They joke around. They bust each other's balls, but they have such kind spirits to them, comparative to the other young men in this. What that does is makes a haunted house situation that much scarier because whereas everyone in the in the uh, in the amateur night segment we see is expendable because they're pretty terrible dudes, these guys aren't expendable. I kind of want them to survive, especially because. After they make their way, and mind you, hilariously so, through this empty house, thinking that it's just a haunted house attraction, they're having so much fun, they're scaring each other, the one guy's dressed as a pirate, oh yeah, the one dude, the one dude is dressed, I believe, as the Unabomber, he's wearing a gray hoodie, sunglasses, and he has his mustache pretty prominently featured, really, really funny stuff, and they're just goofballs, and they're acting the way that any of us would act in a haunted house uh, uh, situation because it's fun it's goofy you're scared you get giggly they hear a party in the attic because as far as we know they think there's a party here but when they get up to the attic there is some sort of ritual going on it appears to be a bunch of dudes torturing a woman who's tied up soon after the uh it's actually funny how they're revealed too, because these guys walk into the chanting of this of this ritual, and they start chanting along like a bunch of bros doing like a like a football song, really really funny. But it becomes clear that they're in danger, and the dudes performing this ritual cast them out. But as they do so, uh, a truly amazing effect: they get sucked into oblivion into the ceiling. All of these guys performing this ritual. Our heroes go running, but to speak to them being good people, they decide to go back and rescue this woman that's tied up. And that is exactly what they do. And the run with her on the way out of the house is really where this hits. This is really where this becomes a fun house movie because it's just a camera following a bunch of panicked people trying to escape a haunted house that is supernaturally closing in upon them. Hands reaching out from the walls, doorknobs disappearing in a puff of smoke. It's, it's pretty upsetting, but it's, it's a lot of fun. It does remind me of poltergeist. It's, it's meant to just kind of be like gag a minute sort of stuff. They do get out, they do make it back to their car, and when they get back to their car, it stalls out on the train tracks. The woman that they've rescued, like, disappears from the car and appears outside and taunts them very creepily. And they are soon hit by a train, and that is, you know, where our film ends. I said earlier that the first film, Amateur Night, would have been a good way to close it. Um, I think I'm gonna walk that back a little bit, whereas I think it would have been a good way to close it and I think it was also a very good way to open it. I think that one and this one, 103198 could probably swap out. I think that it probably is smart to have this at the end because of what I said earlier in the characterizations of the dudes. Uh, they are, it's they're guys that we don't want to see die and we we do see die. And, you know, then, of course, when the film ends, we cut to just, uh, oh yeah, we have to go back to the wraparound. We'll get to that in a second. Um, you know, we we get another taste of these shithead dudes in the wraparound story. This is probably my second favorite one in the entire film. I just think it's a really well done, uh, almost deconstruction of a haunted house movie because of the way that they treat it in a meta style for a while, where they think that it's just a, just like a gag. It's just a, uh, what's the word you know it's like a haunted house event as opposed to an actual haunted house there is an alternate ending to this that is absolutely hilarious that you can see on the disc where they they do get out of the car the train smashes the car but they do get out and for all four of these guys it's a hilarious lark they all laugh like oh shit man that was close oh wow that girl disappeared whoo that was crazy and um but they all agree that this is the best Halloween party ever. Uh really a lot of fun. And whereas that would have been a nice way to end this, because we have to go back to the wraparound story, I think that it's more tonally consistent to have the downer ending of everybody getting rocked by the train. Um I also think too, because we do have a wraparound story where this footage is being found if these guys survived, there's no reason why this footage would have been lost in the first place. We close the wraparound story. Um, now, what I'm about to cover with the wraparound story, uh, you know, this was kind of checked in upon intermittently. Uh, essentially, the old guy becomes undead and kills everybody. And, you know, that's the that that. It's a little bit of uh, unsatisfying wraparound story to close with. But at the same time, I... I wraparound stories are always the most difficult part of a you know an anthology because every anthology is only as strong as as i don't want to say it's only as strong as its weakest element but the experience you know not every not every segment in an anthology will be as strong as its strongest and oftentimes there is a little bit of a flavor loss at its weakest i think with vhs they're all very strong And i think as wraparound stories go this one's pretty strong um it doesn't end in a satisfying ending you know it's satisfying in that lo and behold these guys have just become another tape you know they're they're part of this tape project whatever it may be if there are bigger answers around it i think they do a good job with it i think that the closing credits uh set to this incredible song by the death set uh, where it just features them doing further vandalism, kind of drives home this like punk rock, rock and roll, devil may care, fuck you attitude that that fills this entire film. There is sort of like a metal, like we're gonna make a fucking movie, you know, attitude to it that resonates quite well with me, and and I think uh yeah, I think just does does a really good job of capping the tone of the film, even if plot wise it's not the most satisfying thing. But all in all, I still maintain that of every horror anthology that I've seen, VHS remains the best. In future weeks, maybe not immediately, I would like to cover some of the few, some of the uh, later entries of the VHS trilogy. Um, there is also a Snapchat show that did I think four episodes that I'm going to try and get my hands on because I've not seen those. Um, And all of this in anticipation of VHS 94, a sequel slash reboot. I mean, it doesn't really, there's nothing to sequelize. It's just another entry in this sort of, you know, uh, I almost said tone poem. If I ever say tone poem and mean it, I give you permission to punch me in my fucking throat. Ugh, ugh, tone poem. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, if I ever ever call a movie a tone poem, which I've probably done in the past, but henceforth, if I call a movie a tone poem... Or if i speak unironically about quote my journey i give you permission to at the very least trip me uh i i, I don't i don't i don't want to be that guy but yeah i uh, i love the vhs movies all three of them really um they really bring a lot of filmmakers that are cool into it and i think that in the future we might do some of the abcs of death as well because that is also adjacent to this and it's just a project that that i totally dig um I'm not going to stop this file, though, because we're rolling. We're going to talk a little bit about some actual found footage movies. I'm going to try and do my little drum again. I hope that sounded good. I actually had taught myself how to play the uh, Unsolved Mysteries theme on here, but I have since forgotten how to do it because life, life, is a bitch, no? So uh, let's talk about it. One of the reasons why I love found footage is because i love actual found footage and uh there are some really compelling pieces of found footage out there some of them are real things some of them are not i i don't have much by the way of paranormal on this list that's put together but i do have stuff by the way of like apocryphal um mostly because in my estimation there are a lot of creepy paranormal found footage videos I don't think that there are many that are very convincing especially in the modern era because there are so many amazing things that you can do with digital editing and things like that but there's one there's one paranormal film that exists before all this it's a controversial one and paranormal might even be strong but what i'm referring to is the patterson gimlin film this is the 1967 footage of bigfoot when you close your eyes and picture Bigfoot, this is the image that you picture. And um, the Patterson Gimlin film endures because there's only so much information captured on this film, and there's really not much to work with. There's not a lot of angles that you can approach this film and say, hey, you know, uh, this looks fake because of this, because there's just not enough information in the frame, you know. You can say it could be a guy in a suit, but frankly, it's not that clear. You could say that it walks a certain way, but frankly, it's not that clear. But it does exist before digital editing. So all, all attempts to disprove the Patterson-Gimlin film really take the form of trying to call out the character of Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin, who captured this footage. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily invalid, but it hasn't been enough to convince me. Um, I don't want to get into it too deeply, but I will say that my final stance on the Patterson-Gimlin film is this. I don't know if it's a Bigfoot, because I don't know if Bigfoots are real, and I kind of doubt that they are. I'd love for them to be real, but I just haven't seen it yet. have been doing my research, though. I've been talking to skeptics and believers, and I've heard some compelling arguments either way. So my final stance on the uh, Patterson-Gimlin film is basically this. I don't believe that it's a hoax. I do believe that they caught something. I'm not ready to believe that what they caught is a Sasquatch. That's where I'll leave it. I don't think they purposefully faked a hoax. Another classic piece, and this is one everybody's seen, is the Abraham Zapruder film. This is the film that uh, captured the death of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Ask not which all country can do for you. He is the the vocal basis, uh, the audio basis of Mayor Quimby of The Simpsons. Um, the Zapruder film actually wasn't seen for a while. It was, I believe, brought to America's attention by Dick Gregory. Um, I'm going to pull up the Wikipedia just so I can get this right. Dick Gregory, a uh, comedian and uh, social critic. I'm just, I'm quite literally reading that on the uh, the Wikipedia. Social critic. Uh, no, but like really just like one of those like cool dudes who did some cool stuff. Um, do, 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 do. I can't find anything about it. Either way, I believe that he was the one responsible for popularizing the Zapruder, Zapruder film. Uh, this is probably the most analyzed piece of found footage in the history of of film as a medium. Because whereas there's an official story to what happened to JFK, it's one that just due to the nature of information gathering at the time has a lot of, I don't want to say holes in it, it's a complete story, but it has a lot of gray areas into which conspiracy theorists and folks who like to think about this stuff can insert irrefutable material that might not necessarily be true thus causing uncertainty um i have my own thoughts about what happened to jfk um i do think that oswald acted alone in terms of his own plan i don't think that it was his bullet that ultimately hit kennedy so whereas i do think he did try to kill him i do think his declarations of i'm a patsy were also true um i subscribe to Uh, what last podcast on the left actually landed on and think that in reaction to uh, uh oswald's first shot the hubbub on the ground caused a secret service agent to accidentally discharge their weapon i'll let you listen to the jfk arc on last podcast on the left and decide for yourself but they make a very compelling case for it and uh You know, that story kind of cleans up all of the holes in the story at large. But the thing to look at is the Zapruder film. It is the thing to watch if you want to do an investigation. And short of witness statements and other hearsay, it's kind of, you know, there's also the bullet itself, but like short of the bullet itself and witnesses, there's really no physical evidence to study in terms of that, except for the found footage of the Zapruder film. A couple other pieces of film that, that I actually haven't seen, but would like to see, are two that I think are officially lost forever. The first being the Timothy Treadwell death audio from, uh, you'll know him from Grizzly Man. Timothy Treadwell was the grizzly bear enthusiast who stayed a little too late in a particularly food-scarce season in Grizzly Bear Country and got his ass ate by a bear. Uh, The audio was recording, and this audio does exist. It is owned by his ex-wife, I believe, who has not listened to it, but if you've seen Grizzly Man, Werner Herzog does listen to it, and I'm so jealous of him because I would like to hear it. Uh, I also love, in that moment, he fucks up a cliché, because he listens to it on a pair of headphones as we watch him, and Herzog, uh, ever the filmmaker, ever the performer, takes off the headphones and looks at the wife right in the eyes and says, You must burn this tape. For if you do not burn this tape, it will become the white elephant in the room. Mixing the cliches of white elephant and elephant in the room, but uh, he's Werner Herzog. He gets to mix cliches if he wants, especially after listening to what I understand is a, pretty harrowing piece of audio. I would hope one day to see it the same way that I would hope to one day see the Steve Irwin footage that apparently uh exists. But at the same time, it is not my place to demand that we see these, because this is very personal items to some uh very real people with real feelings that, you know, befell some tragedy. But in terms of found footage timothy treadwell is like one of the holy grail pieces the other holy grail being that of the on air death of christine Chubbuck. christine Chubbuck was a newscaster who shot herself in the head on air unexpectedly um there's a really wonderful movie about this called christine uh, not about the car this one came out a few years back it stars rebecca hall and um is it Michael C. Hall? Do they really have the same last name and they were in the same movie together? No fucking way. Is that what Dexter's name is? Is he Michael C. Hall or am I thinking of someone else? Michael C. Hall. Okay, they're not related. I do know that. But um, yeah, they, they are... And it would be weird if they were because they are sort of there's like a will they won't they thing going on in this whole thing and if they were related it would be weird that said i would love to one day like make a high class art film that no self-respecting actor would uh would ever turn down but demand that the two lead lovers be played by jake and maggie gyllenhaal two such consummate performers that they might just go through with it um although i think at the end of the day that might be criminal and while it would be tasteless that's why i'm doing it because that's funny to me i wouldn't actually do it calm your tits um Christine is this really wonderful movie about Christine Chubbuck. She uh, was unwell and uh, took issue with some stuff on the job, at least as this, if this film is to be believed. And she shot herself in the head on air uh, for a lot of reasons. I don't want a single one down, but due to what she said before she shot herself, she was sort of taking issue with the... Uh, sensationalism of the news that in in conjunction with the fact that you know she was not getting she was not getting the uh the stories that she wanted she was getting fluff pieces uh due to due to sexism so christine Chubbuck did shoot herself on air and it is uh let's see i'm gonna find that quote actually because it's it's pretty scary stuff oh man So, okay, so yeah, we're going to read the Wikipedia here. On the morning of July 15th, 1974, Chubbuck confused co-workers by claiming she had to read a newscast to open Suncoast Digest, something she had never done before. That morning's guest waited across the studio while Chubbuck sat at the news anchor desk. During the first eight minutes of her program, Chubbuck covered three national news stories and then a shooting from the previous day at a local restaurant, the Beef and Bottle, at the Sarasota Bradenton Airport, an airport I have flown into many times because my grandparents lived uh, down there. That part's not in the Wikipedia. The film reel of the restaurant shooting had jammed and would not run, so Chubbuck shrugged it off and said on camera, here's the quote, in keeping with the wxlt practice of presenting the most immediate and complete reports of local blood and guts news tv40 presents what is believed to be a television first in living color an exclusive coverage of an attempted suicide she then drew a 38 caliber smith and wesson model revolver and shot herself behind the right ear she fell forward violently and the technical director faded the broadcast rapidly to black Because this was live and this was back in the day when this sort of thing wasn't necessarily recorded for posterity the way that we can do now in the digital age, it is believed that the network does own footage of this. Um, This is a live broadcast, so it also stands to reason that folks out there in the world may have been recording for some reason, you know, just because VCRs were around. This is 1974. Not quite as common, but it is feasible to believe that somebody somewhere may have been recording it but we don't know that i went online looking for this video because i'm a sick fuck and i was able to find what looked to be an extremely corrupted tape of a tape of a tape of a tape that you can't see any you can see an image of a body what looks to be on the news it looks to have some product production value to it and when this image pulls out the gun and shoots itself it's quite a believable physical reaction by the body the detail is not high enough that you can see a face or any blood guts and gore or anything like that but it's quite unsettling further research indicates that this one copy that i was able to find is indeed a hoax Uh, That somebody just did as a way of circulating this. But even this was particularly hard to find. So I don't know if it is a hoax or if it is real. Um, I think I might feel bad linking to it directly on the show notes. Because it could be real. But I will say that if you dig not that deep, you'll be able to find it. Um, It's pretty unsettling stuff the corrupted nature of the film adds to the unsettling nature of it. But in keeping with the spirit of today's episode of I Like to Movie Movie, the corrupting of the film, if this is a hoax, means that this is a well-directed, well-conceived piece of found footage filmmaking. And so that's kind of where, where my love of found footage comes from is the idea that We're in a position where the investigation of new found footage is tough to do because of things like deep fakes and, and, you know, digital editing and things like that. At the same time, this means we get a lot of really cool found footage filmmaking in the form of hoaxes. So this is a world that I love to play in. And I guess in summation, I think that VHS really does it best. Um, but who knows? There's plenty of movies to see, and God damn it, I intend to see them. Um, I think that's really all for today's episode. Thank you so much for uh, dealing with me and the growing pains as the show grows. I've got some guests coming up in the future. I am also working on a spin-off podcast called Twin Speaks, where I will be going through every piece of Twin Peaks-based media imaginable, including the books, per yesterday's internet poll, um and i will make sure if you are so inclined to follow along that you can uh we're gonna try and un unlock the secrets of twin peaks if and so they can be unlocked you can find me on the internet everywhere at uh at dan scully you can check out my website scullyvision.com that has links to everything that i do links to all of the podcasts this podcast is part of the movie john podcast network and I am a staff writer for Movie John, so definitely log on to moviejohn.com and check out the wonderful work that we're doing there. There is a Patreon that is currently active where you can get some cool stuff and we can work on making movies on the best that it can be you should also check out findy.com for a look at local film and theater to which i contribute and you can check out my other show called hot property it is available on spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts as is this one i like to movie movie at movie movie cast on all of the things please follow the instagram follow the twitter like subscribe leave me a review shoot me an email at movie moviecast at gmail.com if there's a movie that you would like to cover i would like to talk about it heck if you want to come talk about a movie that you love and you're comfortable on a microphone i would be very very happy to talk to you about it so uh definitely check in with all of that and keep your eyes peeled to the social medias because i will be hosting a uh online digital movie discussion happy hour in the coming weeks Uh, fuck it, the tentative date for that is going to be Friday the 13th of August, two days before I turn 37, which is fucked up, but, um, that's not locked in yet, but uh, pencil that in, and we will be back in two weeks with another episode, which I will be announcing the movie of on the social media, at Movie Movie Cast on all of the things, um, I've decided that I no longer like the old sign-off. Also, it was sort of like a two-person thing, and we're not going to do that, so I'm just going to keep it basic and say thank you for watching. Watching? Okay, let's start over. I'm going to say thank you for listening to I Like to Movie Movie. My name is Dan Scully, and there's something good about every movie you see. Yes, even that one.